0: From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. What happens when three college friends, two architects and a sculptor, go out in the world to furnish their first homes and can't find the modern designs they like at prices they could afford? Well, of course, they start a furniture company in Minneapolis called Blue Dot, which over the past 20 some years has earned just about every design award you can think of, including the 2018 Cooper Hewitt National Design Award for product design. That award celebrates design that is a vital humanistic tool in shaping the world pretty major. Today, Blue Dot has stores in eight U.S. cities from New York to Los Angeles and three international stores in Mexico and Sydney, Australia. Blue Dot has also been exhibited at museums including MoMA, the Centre Pompidou in Paris, and the Walker Art Center here in Minneapolis. Here to talk about innovation in design and business are Blue Dot founders John Christakos and Maurice Blanks. Gentlemen, it is an honor. I am big fans oh, of our your pleasure. work. Thank you. Happy to be here. here. Um, so take me back to Williams, your college buddies. There was a third originally, right? Yep, correct. Charlie. Yep. Um, when you guys were in college, did you sit around thinking maybe we should start a business together one day? Was that <laughs> a plan? Was that a thought?
1: I don't think it was in college, but it wasn't. I think it started to germinate just after college. But we we definitely shared the same interests in college, Maurice and I were both studio art majors. Charlie was not a studio art major, but was involved in a lot of classes with us in the art department. So um, we were in and around creative things in, in college. But I think the idea of Blue Dot really, the earliest kind of ger- seeds were planted maybe when we, we backpacked around the world together um, immediately after college. Right. And
0: we're still talking to each other when you got back. <laughs> yeah, we were. Like and best of friends in college, hung out, lived together, like, wh- like the whole thing.
1: Pretty much. Charlie and I were, were roommates uh, in college, and Maurice was a close friend. Didn't didn't live with us.
0: but Okay. yeah. So then you both kind of went, you started your careers in different cities, different places. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. what you did in those early years?
2: Well, I think John mentioned the trip uh, after college, which mm-hmm. I think is really an important part of our history because the three of us traveled the world together. Basically, we scraped together money, traveled for a year at $10 a day, you know, including food and housing. Impressive. Um, But it was a chance for us to kind of go around the world and and look at things. We had this this interest in design in the built world. And we were looking at this world together and talking about it and realized then that we had something in common, that we had a similar way of looking at the world. So that's where I think- Which was
0: what? How would you define that? Well, I think we were
2: interested in, um, I mean, part of it was sort of the humble things, the uncelebrated heroes of design. So it could be a simple hinge in India or a a sewer cover in Japan or something. But things that weren't celebrated as high design, but if you really stopped and thought and looked at them and gave them a minute, they were really gorgeous. Hmm. And there was innovation there and there was thoughtfulness and there was all the things that we think about great design, but they were just utilitarian kind of objects that, that solved a problem. And so I think that we had that in common this sort of celebration of the the humble functional honest object.
0: When you were backpacking, did you all know what you were going to do when you got back to the states? A
1: little
2: bit. Yeah, yeah you,
1: well, knew, you knew you know exactly. I did. Yeah, I I got a job out of college and um was sort of stupid enough to ask them to if I could defer it for a year so I could go backpack around the world and screw around. Yeah. Uh and my parents when I told my parents I asked this company to, to do that, they were like, You you did what? Like companies don't <laughs> colleges defer for a year, but companies don't defer right. jobs for a year. I didn't know any better. And luckily they, they agreed to that. So I had a job to come back to at Bain and Company, which is a management consulting firm in Boston.
0: Not so creative. Not no, I mean, totally definitely different. definitely left brain. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's some creativity there, but, but you no, know, for sure, a, a hardcore kind of business job.
0: So, yeah. and was that kind of just a practical decision? Like, I'm going to go make some money and do art on the side? Or what were you thinking? Well,
1: I was doing art on the side, and... Um, but I, but I'd always had an interest in in business. My dad okay. was an entrepreneur and my mom was an artist, so I had, you know, I was an economics major and a studio art major. So I had these sort of competing well, competing things. So I was sort of satisfying the the left side of my brain, I guess, for that job, but it was also a terrific experience at a great company and a great first job and and um one I you know couldn't kind of pass up.
0: What was, what was the biggest takeaway from being in the world of consulting? Um in terms of starting your own business, then hmm. that's a that's a good a good question. I think it's, uh,
1: you know, it's a lot about thinking about how to solve problems. Um, it, very analytical. I mean, especially at the lower level where I was entering, so we were really analysts. Um, you know, looking at data and trying to you know find um, answers to to different business problems.
0: Okay. So John, you went from there, from Bain to, you came to Minneapolis for a job, right? I, I first there... went
1: to business school at, at Northwestern and then, and then came here for a job out of business school.
0: Okay. And what was the job you came here for?
1: Well, it was an ex-Bain uh, consultant who had a marketing consulting firm. So more marketing strategy focused here in a more boutique kind of consulting firm. But I think when I started that, um, I had, you know, taken out of significant loans to go to business school. So my idea was, you know, I'll, I'll I'll go back into consulting kind of do that for a few years till I can pay off my loans, but I knew I wanted to start uh, my own business at some point. I don't think then necessarily I knew exactly what it was going to be or what it was going to be a blue dot, but um but I knew
2: that's where I was going to end up.
0: And what were you doing, Maurice, during so, this time?
2: I was applying. I joined them a little bit late in the trip in that year because I was applying to graduate school for architecture. Okay. Uh, so I was actually pre-architecture at Williams, and then knew I wanted to go to architecture school, get a graduate degree, and and go into architecture. So, I was essentially applying, sent my applications in, and then got on a plane and went to Tokyo or Kyoto and met John and Charlie. Uh, so I knew that's what I wanted to do, and then I did. I I went to the University of Illinois in Chicago for for architecture school. Uh, Loved Chicago, stayed there, worked for a firm there, and eventually started my own firm uh, in Chicago, actually a year before we started Blue Dot. Um, But we were in constant sort of contact after we left Asia. and, And this idea of doing something that was creative, but also financially viable, a way we could make a living doing something creative, had continued to percolate after we left Asia.
0: Sure. So what were the first steps in actually starting Blue Dot?
2: Hmm. a lot of a lot of um
1: well i think i shot off one fax to i mean i had been facts uh, well yeah facts pre-email pre-email and it's it, this book came out in our 20th anniversary and the faxes are actually in there but um yeah i you know i i'd worked at this new consulting job for a couple of years and i was kind of itching to start something new i'd gotten some great advice from a, um, a uh, somebody at business school I, i'd applied for a fellowship and the person who um, an entrepreneur who, who put up the money to fund this fellowship, um, gave me some great advice, which was essentially, you know, in terms of starting your own business, just pick something you love to do and and um, trust that you'll, you know, hopefully do it better than other people or better enough than other people to make a living and, and be successful. And that was kind of a, an epiphany because I think a lot of folks, when they st- want to start a business think they have to kind of come up with the big idea Mm -hmm. uh the something new you know i mean starting a furniture business is not a new idea um you know our positioning in the market was maybe somewhat unique but um that was really really key advice um because i remember walking out of that conversation and going you know he's probably right like what's the worst that could happen it fails and we go back and and uh you have great educations to fall back on and we get a great job somewhere so Mm -hmm. that was kind of key
0: So did it require a lot of money to get started? I mean, you're going to start a furniture business. Did you come up with a name? Did you know that it was going to be Modern Design? Like, how do you actually start? Yeah,
3: (laughs) good question. It it
0: was a slow
2: process. I mean, we, we, we kind of put the ingredients together fairly slowly. So John was here. Charlie at the time was working for an architect. He also went into architecture. He was in Phoenix working for an architect. I was in Chicago. And so, Charlie and I would sort of fly into Minneapolis, and we'd walk around the lakes, go go to John's house, and we would just talk about what this company could be. So, I think loosely it started as a design company, but that could have been picture frames, it could have been knickknacks, we weren't really sure what that was, it could have been furniture. So, there's a lot of thinking about what that might be and what it might look like and what our interest was, but there was a lot from the very beginning, there was a real focus on what the brand would be about, and the way we kind of phrased it, we talked about how could we create a company that someone could describe like they would describe a person, like that it had a real sense of self? Um, and that was from the very beginning. So I think the idea of the company and the idea of the brand were sort of developed in parallel from the beginning.
1: But, you know, we're trying to build a brand with no money. Uh, so we started the company with $50,000 of our own savings, which got us, you know, through maybe maybe the first, I don't know. Three or four months.
0: <laughs> what What did you do? What were the first things you had to spend money on?
1: Well, the funny thing is, we you know, we designed this first collection of, of products, which was about 16 or 17 pieces in our initial collection. We launched in New York, and the interest was way stronger than we thought. So, you know, we, we were kind of thrown into business very quickly. We we really went to that trade show to just get feedback and see if anybody even just liked what we'd been working on.
0: What were some of the first, this was late 90s, right? Yeah, 97. No, nice. Okay. And what were some of those first pieces? Well, oh.
1: one is the Chicago eight box, which is still in our collection today. It's a big wall sized uh, bookshelf. Um, but it from that at the high end, you know, there's a $1,600 bookshelf down to you know, CD racks, which, of course, we don't sell anymore. But uh, <laughs> so um, we wanted to, you know, um, we wanted our initial um, launch to, to, to show at least, a, you know, a range of products across rooms, across price points so that we looked like somewhat of a holistic uh, company or holistic kind of uh, assortment.
0: And did was the interest from um, furniture retailers who were were you wholesaling to right, other right. stores
1: exclusively wholesaling yep, yep. yeah
0: and was it like kind of full service furniture stores that carried modern and traditional and everything or I mean who who was interested
2: well they were I think a lot of them were specifically interested in modern design and but they were mom and pop shops they weren't big chains and. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. we came along, and, and it was something new because it was more affordable than most of the products they had.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but it was a wholesale business, which is important because we we've changed the business over the years. And at the time, it was 100% wholesale. We went to this trade show in New York, and waited for these retailers to show up.
1: And they, they did. They were sort of the yeah, they were kind of the the hip modern store in each big city. So in New York, it was the Conrad shop and Moss and. In San Francisco, it was zinc details, but they were they were one offs. They were not they were not chains.
0: Who, when you think about it, back I mean, in 1997, where were normal people shopping for furniture besides? I mean, w- w- were the Pottery Barns and West Elms? They, it well, West real, Elm, West wasn't, Elm, Elm around. wasn't around.
2: Right. So. CB2 was not around. Right. right, right. So Crate and Barrel was around, and I mean, I think you had the large regional chains. The sort of those huge regional chains that you go in, and they're a hundred thousand square feet. Um, IKEA had two locations, right? I think one was in LA and one was in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was a very dis- different landscape than it is today, and there was yeah. no internet. I
1: mean, room and board existed here. That they were a really good model, kind of one of the few I think that was kind of doing roughly what we were kind of aiming for. Um, but design within reach didn't exist. CB2, West Elm, they didn't exist. So it was really it was IKEA on the low end. It was. You know, international market square or high-end European brands that you needed an architecture designer just to get into the showroom, you couldn't even get access to um, at the high end, and there was this really big, um, you know, space in the middle. Yeah,
2: right. So it wasn't. I, I, I think it's important that the the reason we started the company was not because we didn't like the way furniture looked. It wasn't that we thought there was a better style or we could do the the design better it was that there was a whole segment of the market that was kind of unexplored and that was more affordable modern design so modern design was either like he at the low end or you know the showrooms that John mentioned at the really high end but there was this sort of middle kind of like the you know the j crew of Of furniture Mm -hmm. didn't exist. You had, you know, Armani, and you had Old Navy, but there was nothing that was kind of in the middle. Right, and that was what we—that was the need that we saw as consumers ourselves.
1: Lasting, lasting quality, but at at sort of fair prices and with no attitude.
0: Mm -hmm. Are you surprised? The, by the way, I mean, I feel like there is a lot of modern. There's probably a lot of people trying to copy you guys and knock you off. But, I mean, are you surprised by the explosion of, of modern in the last 20 years?
1: Hmm. I don't know if I'm surprised. I mean, we're heartened by it. It's it's great for our business. Is it? <laughs> yeah. It doesn't oh, make sure. it harder? No, it's no, no, no. The the furniture business is – I mean, the, the the market is so big. The industry is so big. There's room for – there's room for everybody. We go to every every year, every other year, we go to Milan in April, which is the big furniture fair um, in Europe. And um, it's acres and acres and acres of furniture companies. Right. We're all doing rough, you know, pretty much contemporary or modern design. And it's overwhelming, but you kind of leave and go, God, there's room for everybody. All these companies are, you know, alive and succeeding. So, um, no, it's great. I think the internet had a huge part of it. I mean, you know, all the sort of, DIY, design shows, television, HGTV, you know, if you were interested in design back when we started Blue Dot, you know, you you subscribed to Architectural Digest, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, or maybe Metropolis if you were really in the know. But otherwise, you know, right. there was no place to really learn about it.
0: Yeah. Um, at what point did you decide that you were going to open your own stores? When did, what year did you open your first store? 2008. Oh, so it was. It was quite a while. Yeah. So great economic time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really. That's just the perfect time to open a retail right. store. Was the first one here? No, no. New York. New
2: York. Yeah. New York
1: yeah. Okay. And Soho.
0: How did that go in two thousand eight?
2: Well, it was. We actually opened officially on the day that Bernie Madoff was arrested. Oh. So it was. It was sort of Memorable? the beginning of bad times. Okay. And, um, And it was a big leap for us. I mean, it was a huge investment. And because we weren't a known national brand, the landlord asked us for one year security deposit. So I think people that rent apartments are used to one month security deposit. So imagine laying out an entire year of rent um, for a small company was a huge reach for us. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't without some nervousness that we did this. Um, I think what we saw happen in 2009, so that was the end of 2008. And then 2009, uh, I think what was happening with people were people still had money. They felt a little less secure about it. Uh, so when they went shopping in Soho, instead of going to the high-end European shops and buying something, they would come into Blue Dot and they would actually buy something. So I think there were people that were sort of trading down a little bit in price point to to Blue Dot. Uh, so the first year we were profitable.
0: Was that the impetus for opening the store or were you seeing a shift in the marketplace where you wanted to control the, the whole process instead of going through third-party mm-hmm. retailers?
1: Well, I think we saw that. You know, we were grateful for the business that all of our wholesale customers had given us and helped us build a brand to that point. But it was limited. That channel was limited. There's only so many uh, cool stores in each city, and they're not going to put. They're not going to devote their entire floor to Blue Dot. They're going to devote a small little corner. Um, and then our pieces were getting kind of merchandised with other people's work, and it and it was you know it was blurry. Like it was it was not the best we you felt not control the message yeah we're well, not the best presentation of our of our work we felt like so we thought we'd at least give retail a try and we thought that that would be you know a way to expand the market and at the time i think um design within reach who a friend of ours uh, a good friend uh, had founded um was you know they were about to go public and they were growing really quickly and they were direct to consumer and so we could see what the appetite was um for a direct-to-consumer brand in in our space. Um, And we were realizing that the sort of mom-and-pop channel was a a limiting, was a bottleneck for Mm -hmm. us getting to the market.
0: That said, were you, to go back for just one second, were you, how long did it take to be profitable in those early years? Mm -hmm. I mean, you went to that first trade show, people responded. Was it just like, you're... Printing money after that, or like no, how, yeah. Just did you quit your s- day jobs swimming, immediately? Swimming and money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh my God. Had to design we a were pool like, for boy, for we
1: Broke for about seven years. I think we years. bought the first jet in. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, but did you? Had you? Did you quit your day jobs before? I mean, you were all in when you decided well, to launch Blue Dot.
2: We, we sort of rolled, in. John was the first to quit his job.
1: Um, so I quit my job about eight or nine months, I think, before we launched in New York, and then. Once we launched in New York and we came home with a, you know, with a folder full of orders, um, I was reaching out to – I knew Maurice wouldn't come join me because he had his own firm, architecture firm going in in Chicago and he wouldn't – you know, that was too much to close down. Um, But Charlie was just working for an architect in Phoenix, so I called him up and I'm like, how quickly can you move up here and help out? So Charlie then quit his job and moved to Minneapolis with his wife and daughter and dog and uh, live with with my wife and I for you know the first 6 months or so.
0: How and long did he stay in the company? 5 years. 5 years. Okay. Yeah, so really
1: the first those first 5 years were kind of I don't know if they're full 5 years but Charlie and I um working in those years, Maurice came in when it was easy, uh, five years later. <laughs> yeah.
2: Once the you were baby, sure it was going to really. Once the baby was potty trained <laughs> and out of the crib.
0: What, what kind of role did you play from afar in those early you years? Know, it was just, uh, we would
2: talk about design. I would come in and we would, we would work on design, but they were doing all the heavy lifting. I would go to trade shows and.
1: He came in for every photo shoot
2: for magazine.
1: Sure. sure. Yeah, Whenever yeah. there was you know, marketing opportunities. Obviously. Right. Parties, <laughs> things like that. That's right. No, he was actually, Maurice helped a lot, uh, you know, we would do trade shows in High Point and in New York. And, you know, he'd take time off from his firm and come down and, and help set up and sit, sit in the booth and, you know, sell and everything. So, um, and he'd come to the photo shoots. But,
2: but they were working long days and and uh, and not paying themselves very much. Uh, so it was, I mean, to answer your question about profitability, I, I think we sort of bumped around break even kind of for the first few years. You know, it wasn't, a, we, we weren't losing as much as companies like Uber and, uh, we were at can but <laughs> right. uh,
1: you
0: didn't have outside investors did <laughs> no. you we no. did your own
2: not, not for not for a while
1: I think maybe five or six years in we we did a round of friends and family um, and raised some money I had um I had a, a little nest egg from a from a family business that I was I was using to borrow against so we had a line of credit at a bank um, that supplemented that fifty thousand dollars of equity that we put in as founders and um, but that was getting drawn down pretty heavily. And then um, that friends and family around kind of loosened that up a little bit. But we were basically, you know, losing, losing money, maybe making a little bit of money, bouncing around break even. We had a couple of years that were significantly negative, And I, I can't remember. That was probably around the dot com um, bust of like
0: 2000, yeah. 2001. Um, were there any moments when you thought about like going to take another job or do something else? Not no really, no.
2: Not in a serious way.
1: No. No, I mean, there was, you know, I mean, I think it's typical of probably all startups or at least startups that were funded the way ours was, not with buckets of VC money. But, um, you know, we were doing it kind of the old school way. And, um, yeah, so cash flow was tight for a long time. So uh, we spent a lot of time uh, figuring out, you know, which suppliers we were going to pay and which suppliers we were going to stretch and, and who could we collect from, who, you know can we convince them to send us a check early to try and, you know, pay the suppliers
2: of the ship so that we can then invoice, you know, it was that kind of thing.
0: When did you, oh, go ahead. I was just
2: going to say, but I think we always believed in the idea of the business, that it would be successful. Mm -hmm. So I don't think you give up on a business because you're profitable or not profitable. I think you give up because you think the fundamental idea is flawed in some way. And I don't think we ever thought that.
3: Yeah.
0: When did you bring on employees?
1: Soon. Right away. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, you know, Charlie and I, I think hired our, yeah, we had brought on somebody to help us in the warehouse. So, you know, we would be kind of working in the office for most of the day. And then uh, we had somebody helping package and, you know, ship orders in the warehouse during the day. And then Charlie and I would go into the warehouse and for the evening and,
0: and pack orders ourselves. So You were doing the designs and then you would hire, you would have someone else manufacture them for you. Right. Okay. Yeah. And that's still the way it works. It is, yeah. Your Minneapolis team is design focused and sales right. or what else happens at headquarters?
2: Right, marketing, Everything finance. but production.
1: You know, we thought, I think when we founded the company that we would start that way, you know, um, using contract manufacturers to, to make our stuff but and that we would eventually have our own factories and I think once we got going we realized how complicated just doing what we were doing was, and to actually have a factory and have the capital to buy the equipment and, and know how to run a factory was like a whole nother thing. Um, it also limited us because we had some friends that had startups about the same time as ours that that did that took that approach, and you know they would spend fifty thousand dollars on a machine that bent. A metal rod, and then everything they would design would be made out of metal rod because mm. you know they needed to keep this machine moving. So, so we like the more flexibil- fle- yeah. flexibility, flexibility yeah. of not doing that. Yeah. Um, so it was
2: like a, you know, it was a bit like an artist. Palette, right. So that if you if you have that capability in house, then you're going to only use that color. Right. But if you don't have that, then you can use any color you want. Sure. And we knew eventually we'd want to go into upholstery, and we'd want to go into lighting, and we'd go into rugs, and all those different things require different tools. So we would have been so limited if we just m- bought something that could make a coffee table.
0: Very interesting. Do you think – you mentioned VC money. Do you think if you were starting this business, if you guys were just getting out of college today, would it have been – would you have taken a different approach? I mean, it's so, you know, sexy and trendy to, you know, have investors and get VC money. Do you think you would have done it differently?
2: For sure. I mean, I think we would have just because – I think the environment's different. I mean, you know, we never heard the word, the phrase Series A,
3: mm-hmm. uh, you
2: know, until we were, like, in our 40s. Right. And now I think if you're in 10th grade, you know what that means. So it's a very different environment. And I think it's – I think we would – I don't know, speak for John, but I think I feel grateful that we started our business when we did because it was a different environment. And I, I think it was actually easier to start a business then.
0: Hmm. Why? Uh,
2: because I think that there's uh, – there's so much pressure now to gain market share so quickly that if you start a business and you don't have 50 million in sales in six months and a hundred million in sales six months later, if you don't have a hundred percent growth rate, then people don't see it as a viable business. And in order to do that, you have to raise money, which means you have to give away a lot of the company. Uh, and then your, your acquisition cost for customers is higher than your revenue. So you're losing money. It, it just seems like a really hard thing to do.
1: Mm-hmm. It's more of a rat race. I mean, it's a yeah, it's a and it's fueled by investors. I mean, it's fueled by the 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 amount of money sloshing around out there looking for good ideas. So um, that's I don't think that's that's great for for um, the creation of companies necessarily because I think they can be um, founded on the wrong kind of principles. Sure, we're, we're we're grateful that we you know we had to make money early on, and that's really a part of being being resourceful and being not thrifty, but being responsible basically is, um, you know, is a huge part of our culture
0: still now. Right. Um, so back to the the retail experience. It's it's two thousand eight, two thousand nine. You've got a store in New York. People are showing up. Do you immediately think, okay, we got to do more of these? This is this is the future. Did you? Is that when you started catalogs? How did things start to to evolve?
2: Well, I think we were very slow to start a second store, open a second store, and I think most of that was probably around cash, is that we just didn't have a lot of money to go sign leases and open more stores, and it was bandwidth. So going back to this idea of not kind of moving too quickly, uh, it was just being cautious and kind of slowly building the business rather than trying to just turn on the gas so fast that we jeopardize the business.
1: Yeah, we were just learning a little bit of how to do retail. You know, we'd never had our own store before. And and also our, our assortment wasn't um, very large, you know. So it was hard to even fill out our twenty five hundred square foot, relatively small store in Soho. We didn't have lighting. We didn't have rugs. We didn't have a lot of categories that you need. The sort of sprinkles in between uh, to to make a furniture store, you know, home furniture store come to life. So, so what did
0: you do? Did you quickly start making those things? We did. We did. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We started, you know, designing. Faster, because <laughs> <Making, laughs> you didn't want things.
0: to bring in other lines. No, right? no, no, no. You wanted no. it all to be your own.
1: Right. That's right. Yeah, we, you know, everything, uh, everything we sell, we we design. So, um, yeah, I think, but it was maybe only about two years later that we opened our second store in Los Angeles. Then a year later, in one in San Francisco, and they they got a little bit bigger and a little bit more polished. Uh, um, so, but we wanted to do it slow. We'd seen a lot of examples. Uh, retailers that had gone too fast. Design Within Reach was one that went too fast. They Mm -hmm. opened 60-some stores and then, you know, almost went bankrupt and and had to, you know, restructure essentially. And they're now back down to like 30-some stores. And Restoration Hardware was another one that opened boatloads of stores that were all relatively small and mall-based. And you've seen how they've changed into these massive, uh, massive stores and fewer of them. So... um, we thought we you know, we didn't we didn't need to do that. We had nobody breathing down our neck because we weren't going public, we didn't have investors. So we thought it was just smarter to kind of take our time and, and learn as we go.
0: So what did you learn and what I mean, and now is there like a, a pattern to how often you open? And why did it take so long to open one in Minneapolis? We were waiting <laughs> right here. <laughs> it's only an outlet store. Only open I know. on Saturday and Sunday.
1: We're looking to open up full Are a, we, a real is, store. Is
0: Minneapolis just not do we just don't shop enough. There aren't enough of us. What? What is it? Nothing. Why don't you have the full experience here?
1: Nothing against Minneapolis, but we felt like if if it didn't work in Soho, it wasn't going to work. Hmm. So what we didn't want to do is start in Minneapolis, and if it didn't work in Minneapolis, mm. scratch our heads and say, is it because it's not a first tier, big, huge city like New York? Um, so you know, we just started with the biggest opportunity and kind of work our way, work, working our way down.
0: Okay. So you didn't really answer my question, though. Are we ever going to get... Yeah, I mean, you, yeah, you yeah, do yeah, have yeah, some. Yeah. You do yeah. show the collection in the front of the outlet, which, by the way, the outlet, love the outlet, Thank appreciate you. it. <laughs> and it's such a beautiful space yeah. right next to your... Uh, what What was that building originally?
2: Originally, it, it was built... We, we've been told to build aircraft wings during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And that was our office. That, was, that space was our office. And then we outgrew that space, and we rented the space next door and moved next door, and then that became the outlet mm-hmm. um, but it offered us the chance then to move back expand back into that space if we ever got big enough and we could have the same campus for a decade or more
1: campus I like that yeah, Jessica.
0: yeah just take <laughs> over northeast um so how do you decide today how do you decide on Sydney how do you decide on Portland how do you know where to go next
1: well it's a, it's um there's a there's like a rough sort of Order ranking to from biggest opportunity to smallest opportunity, and then within that, it really comes down to real estate and where the where the best opportunities surface. And some markets take a, it has taken us a really long time. We're, we're we've signed a lease in Miami and we'll open a store there at the end of next year, but have been looking in Miami for three years or four years just to find the right just to right find the place. right you know right the right spot, the right location, the right price, etc. So, and then others pop up like that you know Portland I think on my first visit to Portland to look look at potential store locations it found really the I the perfect location priced well it's just 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 what we needed and you know that came together really quickly so um, you have a lot of lines in the water and it just depends on you
2: know which ones. And not wanting to grow too quickly, it's, it's a nice position to be in. It's a nice negotiating position to be in with landlords because if you have to open 20 stores a year and you have to be in Portland – you're going to be chomping at the bit to sign whatever lease you can get. Sure. And we have the luxury of saying, "Mm, you know, the deal's not perfect. I think we're just going to wait it out because Mm. we have six other lines in the water. And the the last thing you want to have happen is all six of those lines to get fish on them because then you're trying to figure out how can you open six doors with the operation and the infrastructure that we have currently.
0: Right. Have you noticed a, a shift in retail? Obviously... People are buying more online and they don't need to come in. Do you find that they're using you as a showroom and then ordering online? How important is the store in generating sales? It's
2: really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and it's hard for us to really answer that question about are they shopping in the showroom and then going home and ordering on the web or are they shopping on the web and then going in the store and purchasing? We know that both happen, but I don't think we really know to what extent. But we do know that when a store goes into the market as you would expect, the online business goes up, and you know, the, the, the the whole tide rises.
0: But people still want to sit on a chair yeah. before they buy yeah. it. They and want a physical experience,
1: and it's a high ticket purchase. I mean, yeah. it's a considered purchase. You know, oftentimes they'll come into the store two or three times before they decide to you know make a purchase. They'll come in by themselves, and then they'll bring a spouse in later. Um, but I mean, you're seeing it in other categories, right? Where these these so-called digitally native brands like Warby Parker or Casper Mattress. Start out with this pure online-only business model, and then all of a sudden end up being multi-channel retailers like the rest of us, right. with bricks and mortar and ca- print catalog and, and online. So, I just think it's um, it's the way we all shop. You know, I think you need that. You kind of need that mix. They feed off one another.
0: So today, what is the the breakdown in terms of like online sales, store sales? Are you still wholesaling? Do you still have some? We do retail we do. accounts.
1: We do, yeah. We we we've limited it to to those sort of I'd say the better retailers in in the U.S. that that are committed to to giving us a sizable piece of their floor, and we call them dot spots. Um, so they're kind of stores within a store. Um, but there's not there's not many of them, but they're they are an important part of the business. Um, I'd say that our stores are, are about our stores and online are roughly equal. Uh, Right. And then we
2: yeah, and then we have another piece of our business that we haven't talked about, which is uh, what we call trade business, which is architects and designers. Uh, so that's actually a really large part of our business.
0: And how does that work?
2: Well, it's a lot of it's in the commercial world, so it's re it's uh, office space. Um, so uh, you know, forty years ago, you designed an office and it was all cubicles, mm-hmm. and now you design an office and people want to feel like they're at a boutique hotel. Mm-hmm. So uh, everyone is looking for furniture like Blue Dot to sit around and have group meetings, and they don't want to sit at cubicles. Uh, so this this business sort of snuck up on us. We just started to realize we were getting more and more orders for office. And so lately, we've been really you know, proactively going after that business.
0: And does that mean that you're customizing furniture for them? Are you designing it or...? It's
2: I would say we're we're sort of tweaking around the edges. So I think first and foremost, we're a residential furniture company. But if we can uh, do something that's a good crossover item, so it will work in a residence, but it would also work in a commercial setting, then we'll we'll do that. But I don't think you'll see us doing things that are very specific. For just that market,
1: and we don't customize for a particular project unless it's like a large hotel or quite a large project. So I mean, most of these office um, customers are, are buying straight out of our line, um, you know, but just in larger quantities to fill out bigger spaces
0: and then there's the other part that that the consumer probably doesn't realize is that you do some work for other companies for right. other retailers for for big retailers, yeah, and that is they're coming to you to design. For them, and you don't like to talk about that. No, no, we're, we're, no,
1: we're <laughs> totally fine. We're totally fine talking about it. The looks on the faces. <laughs> no, no, no. Is, is
0: that a significant part of the business? Is that, I mean, that happened early on, right? It and did. It happened early helpful. on. It
1: was really key to our growth. Uh, we had large retailers at the time like Crate and Barrel and Target here in town, and Target's still a very important customer of ours. Um, yeah, asked us. They liked what we did in our own line, but it was priced too high and didn't quite fit their customers. And asked if we would uh, design custom collections for them, um, which we which we did and still do. So, uh, you know, it's it's really we we it's it's really challenging and fun and really central to our original mission, which is to bring great design to the world at really fair prices. What could be more fair than? Than prices at at Target, for example. So that's a real challenge to make a great piece of furniture that can retail at the prices that Target wants them to retail
2: at. Um,
0: is it the same team that does that? It is that the does same Blue team. Dot. It okay. is,
2: and it's actually kind of fun because it allows the design team and the product development team to sort of flex different muscles. They're mm-hmm. not doing the same thing all the time, and we have learnings both ways. So we'll learn something on the Blue Dot brand that then will apply to the private label business, and vice versa. Uh, so that's actually been pretty productive.
0: What do you two do? Like, what's a normal day for you guys? Everybody asks (laughs) us. We
2: do podcasts. Yeah, it's
0: great. Very available midday. We do this thing Uh, called lunch. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, you've earned that. But, but I mean, really, do are you still involved in design, or is it all business? What What do you do?
1: No, we're still very much involved in design. I mean, that's the reason we started the company, and that's the most fun part of our job. You know, we regularly get emails from other designers saying, "Would you consider?" My designs to to produce you know our my designs and and you know our response is always the same which is you know that's the funnest part of our job so we selfishly keep that to ourselves so mm. Maurice and I are both equally involved in the product development and design process really as now as more creative directors than. You know, uh, pencil to sketch pad kind of designers like we were in the early days, um, and then we we take the rest of the business and kind of split it up. and And Maurice is more on the operations and sort of back of the house, and I'd be more front of the house, sales and finance and marketing.
0: Has it was it an easy divide between who does what in terms of responsibilities? Yeah,
2: I think it was. I mean, I came to the business five years into the
0: into yeah. the
2: life of the company.
0: What was the moment that you decided to shut down your uh, <laughs> firm in Chicago and and actually move here?
2: Uh, <clears throat> I that's was, a good story
0: <laughs> so
2: I was uh, I was approached by um, uh, the Style Network which was part of E! Entertainment back mm-hmm. in the late 90s mm-hmm. this was about 2001 um, and they were starting a design show and they wanted it to be sort of like an online magazine like kind of met home but but uh, on TV so it would have different segments and um, and they were looking for they wanted someone who was actually in the industry they didn't want a a host, an actor, or act you know, mm-hmm. to come in and just just read things off of a transcript. They wanted somebody who actually knew something about design, right?
0: An architect with good hair, <laughs> and that's you, right?
2: right. That, <laughs> that, ding, that, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> <laughs> and they had come into the Blue Dot showroom in High Point, and uh, and I, I think I was the only one there. I don't know where John and Charlie were, but <laughs> so I, I, walked them around. And they had their camera, and I talked about the pieces. And then at some point, they pulled up all that footage, and they were looking through uh, their all the tape they had from various high points, and they said, would you want to fly out and, and audition for this job? And uh, I was in Chicago, and it was probably winter, and I said, yeah, I'll go to L.A. for a couple of days, and they'll put me up and drive me around in the limousine. Of course I'll go. Uh-huh. And I thought I'd never get the job, and I got the job. And uh, But part of the, one of the requirements of the job was that I quit my job, that I closed my firm in Chicago, and I moved to Los Angeles full-time. Wow. Um, unfortunately, this big sh- it was a big ass. but it, it seemed interesting. And I thought it wouldn't last forever. And why not try it and see what happens?
0: And it was early enough in your firm that you didn't feel Yeah, like- it was
2: hard because I had clients that had been in business for five or six years and I had contracts with those clients. So I'd have to keep my office open uh, while I was doing that. But I would have to kind of transition out of it slowly, slowly uh-huh. let the office die.
0: So basically you go to lunch at a trade show, come back and he's a TV star.
2: That's
1: right. Is
0: that kind of what yeah. happened? <laughs> totally.
1: Charlie and I were sweating our asses off in the, uh, in the warehouse, and he's out in L.A. Oh. with a screen test. Calling with the, wow. from the, with the voice
2: coach. Calling poolside. <laughs> but but the, the way I got to Blue Dot from that is the, uh, the executive producer of the show started seeing some of these other design shows that were happening on other networks that were really more about uh, um, people and personalities. And our show was too cerebral. Um, And at some point, they came to me and they said that I could no longer use the word design. I had to use the word decorate because I thought the word design was too intimidating. And so I immediately called my friend. I I had a friend who was actually an attorney in in Hollywood. And I called him and I said, how do I get out of this contract? Uh, Because I saw them sort of dumbing the show down. And I saw it becoming something that I didn't. They wanted to be trading spaces. They wanted to do something where people were going to cry and they were going to laugh. And they didn't really care about good design.
0: And that wasn't your jam. And
2: that wasn't my jam. So... I said, I'm out. And then, but I had no firm in Chicago. We'd sold our house in Chicago.
0: You were married at this point? I was married. Yeah.
2: uh, And and actually had a, a, how old was Alice at the time? Young baby. Uh And so I called John and I said, um, hey, uh, is there any room at Blue Dot for me these days? (laughs) And there was. There was. Good thing we're so forgiving after the whole Hollywood (laughs) thing. Seriously. But, it, it would have been good for Blue Dot. I, I did sneak Blue Dot product onto the sets all the time.
1: Uh, well, the, um, there wasn't really room because you know we were still a we're still a struggling startup at that at that stage, and you know Charlie and I were barely paying ourselves anything. And to have a third founder, um, we we really couldn't have afforded. But um, I knew Charlie was not happy uh, necessarily at Blue Dot because you know he's a he's a really he's a designer a purist designer at heart and we weren't spending any of our time designing in those years. I mean, we were spending all of our time just keeping the, you know, plates spinning. Um, So I could sense that he was unhappy and he and I were teaching a design class at the University of Minnesota. And after one class, I pulled him aside and said, you know, there's this opportunity. Maurice wants to come join us, but we really can't afford all three of us, but you seem... Not that happy, you know. It might be an opportunity for you to go back into architecture, if you, you know, only if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had put in so much blood, sweat, and tears that there was no way I was going to ask him to step aside, or and I had no interest in that. Uh, but it, only if it worked for him, and um, he seemed like really visibly relieved, huh. you know, that he had kind of a a way out that that still um, maintained our. Relationship and 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 we could help facilitate that. So
2: yeah. and he didn't feel like he's letting us down. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Best advice for for others about starting a business with friends and staying <laughs> friends. I mean, do you guys still hang out on the weekends? Or are you we like do. sick of each other yeah. by Friday? No, we
1: do. We do. <laughs> I, I think the some good advice is to if you do it with really close friends, that's better than doing it with friends that aren't super close. Because mm-hmm. I think. You know, we were in each other's weddings and, you know, traveled around the world together. We're very tight, close friends. And so you never really let business get in the way of that if you're that close. Mm-hmm. But if you're sort of new friends or you don't know the person incredibly well, you know, there's there's inevitably times that that will be difficult. And um, I think I could see how
2: that could get a little more
1: challenging. Yeah. But
2: I think it's also I think part of our success has been that we are not the same. We're very different mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. So. Uh, it, uh, I tell the story that there was—I can't remember this—was probably ten or fifteen years ago, and for some reason we were getting uh, uh, psychological assessments done on a big hire we were going to make, and so we thought before we did that and relied on this assessment, let's see how good the assessment tool is. So we decided to take the assessment tool ourselves. So we went online and answered all the questions. And then we got our results back, and it was—it was some sort of a chart, basically based on certain characteristics, but it was—it was definitely a line. And we sort of looked at them, and, and I, I turned mine over, so upside down, and then turned at 90 degrees and held them up to the light, and they were almost exactly the same. Huh. So it was the like... inverse? Yeah, comple- we were like... A, wow, comple- very visual comple-
0: thinker to <laughs> do that, <huh? laughs>
2: Complete opposites. But I think it's been good that we we understand uh, where we're strong and where we're weak and where the other's strong and where the other's weak, and we can kind of supplement each other, and and we don't try to compete in the same ways. Um, but at the same time, there was, there was one... Uh, I think there was one or two elements of that analysis that were very consistent, which was sort of energy. Like, you know, there's a similar level of energy, and we have a very similar idea about what design is to us and sort of our. I think our values and our principles are, are the same. So make sure that all the right things that shouldn't be the same are not the same, but then make sure the things that have to be the same are the same.
0: Mm-hmm. I've actually had other um, founders in here recommending doing a personality test before going into business mm-hmm. with a friend. It's probably a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, what drives you today? Why do you keep doing this? What what?
1: It's fun, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, uh, I mean, really, truly. I mean, uh, and and now at this stage of, of the business where we're, you know, 21 years, 22 years into it, we're opening stores that are gorgeous and, you know, our designs are, you know, better each year. Uh, our team is amazing. Um, it's, in, you know, incredibly fun. It's the most rewarding. It just gets more and more kind of rewarding as mm-hmm. we go along. So it's really great to see, I think, you know, what was a vision 22 years ago, truly coming to life now, you know, mm-hmm. when we opened our first store in New York, we did it with $80,000 of build out. And, you know, we were painting the walls ourselves. And, you know, it was, it was a nice store, but it was definitely kind of junior varsity, you know, <laughs> and, and you know, I'd say now we're kind of getting into a stage where we're really seeing the brand and, and our original vision kind of come to life the way we, we always wanted it to. And there's just so much room for,
2: continued growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's taken us all this time to kind of build this platform that can get good design into the world. And uh, and it's a, it's a lot more powerful than it's ever been. So I think we just feel like there's a lot of potential there that we're going to continue to kind of expand it and, and, and keep the Keep, keep things going.
0: Not everybody who excels in business, has, a lot of times it's, you know, you're either good at design or you're good at business. Mm-hmm. You guys seem to be good at both. What, what are, what's the philosophy? What, are there lessons that business people can take in paying more attention to design? <laughs> or, I mean, how do you see them as more, you know, meshed and parallel?
1: We somewhat see it as the same thing. I mean, one of our kind of core values is is good design is good. And really what we mean by that is that, you know, we see everything as a design opportunity. So it's not just the design of our products, but it's the design of our organizational structure. It's the design of our compensation. It's the, you know, all these business decisions are essentially design hmm. decisions. Um, so we think of it as a really holistic design problem in a way. Um,
2: right. So I think in some companies, design is a kind of a box that you have to check. It's something that you the CEO may not be interested in, but they know that it's somehow essential and they don't really understand it. And I think for us, it's just it's just part of who we are. Uh, and I think we both tend to be, we're similar in the sense that uh, I think we really uh, are interested in design and we're also very practical. So... N- I think what happens in situations where it goes bad is if you have somebody that all they care about is design and so they don't care about the business side of it, so they can't sustain a business or they're so interested in the business that they'll they'll just sort of make whatever they have to make to sell something. Uh and I think that we really care about both. And I think we're I think as a company we're really good at both. And that's mm-hmm. what makes us different.
0: So one thing that you'd like to do professionally or personally in the next five years. Mm-hmm. You're gonna open some stores. You- New products, anything totally different? I've heard you guys give some kind of sarcastic answers when people ask you what's next and you're (laughs) like, design. I don't know. I ran that search. Yeah, Yeah. right. (laughs) You're going to just design everything. Yeah. Anything that's kind of on your bucket list? For blue dot or otherwise. I mean, I'd,
1: I mean, I'd love to see us expand internationally more. And that's you know the the stores that we have right now internationally are through international partners that have kind of reached out to us. So we wouldn't know how to operate and open a store in Mexico City or in Sydney, Australia, if we didn't have great partners that approached us and said, "Hey, Mexico City needs a blue dot, and Sydney needs a blue dot." So you know, I'd love to see beautiful blue dot stores in in Paris and London and Rome and you know all all over. So. That's a harder thing to do because it's kind of hard to find those partners. So I'm putting out this ad right now for if you're interested. There in we Rome go. They're press. all listening yeah. to By All Means. Call <laughs> but, but I would but I would love to see that. Yeah. You know, I mean, we can definitely see a path to to opening, you know, having more stores in, in the US, but I don't think we'll end up we'll probably end up with 20 or 30. I think we still want to we still want it to be special and somewhat scarce. Um but internationally I think that would be really fun.
2: Yeah, I think that it's been What's been fun about Blue Dot is that it is, it's is—it's always changing. You're always learning something new. And um, just this sort of slow growth just brings you to new plateaus that you, you, you see something new that you haven't seen before. You have to solve new problems that you've never solved before. Um, so even with – it sounds sort of boring, but we want to keep doing the same thing we're doing. We want to keep opening stores and designing more product and expanding the assortment. And that's what we've been doing for 20 years. But it's always been different, and there's always been new challenges, right, and you can't always see those challenges,
0: yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you both. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. John, Maurice, really appreciate you being here. Congratulations on everything. I'm going to hold you to a store in Minneapolis. I want the full experience right here at headquarters. got it. Can we do that? It's coming. Okay, good. (laughs) You heard it here. Stick around. We're going back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. That's next. Check out Blue Dot. You can go online, bluedot.com. It's right there. And now back to the classroom with our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. So John and Maurice talk about design thinking, how they approach every aspect of business from a design perspective. Clearly, they're very visual thinkers in a very tactile business, but design thinking is an actual technique and a class here at St. Thomas. It's taught by Alec Johnson, who is an associate professor in the Department of Entrepreneurship. Alec, I'm really curious how you think about design thinking and how you teach it
3: everything around us is designed by somebody mm-hmm. except mother nature's trees and grass and clouds you know that there's a different designer there but everything else was designed by us right including right. everything in this studio mhm
0: well and that's kind of how we started with John and Maurice talking about them noticing hinges and noticing little details that we tend to take for granted how does that relate to Business in a broader sense? What if you're not in the furniture business? What do you do with design thinking? Sure.
3: So, design thinking is a process. You don't have to be uh, particularly creative, though most of us are, to be a good designer. It's a process of innovation. And at the core of that process is experimentation. And you see that in the comments John and Maurice make about how they grow their business.
0: Right. Um, you were sort of, you, you, you were saying that we could have talked longer. Good to know, because I always am aware of that. Um, but the, that you thought they would go on about their process of designing furniture and how would you apply what you teach to what they do?
3: They revealed some of it in how they rolled out their first store in New York versus Minneapolis. And they had a hypothesis, which is if we roll it out here, And we fail, we really haven't learned anything about the rest of the country. Mm. If we roll it out in New York City and we fail or succeed, we may still have other opportunities. More lessons to apply. More lessons to apply.
0: So is there a key uh, assignment or project in design thinking? What am I going to do if I take this class? We
3: have a lot of really
0: interesting projects in the past, including redesigning
3: a porta-potty, reimagining the breakup experience to more serious topics, for example, reimagining how we manage anxiety for students on campus.
0: But wait, do you tell the students to figure out how to do that? Or, or how open-ended is the original assignment? What do you ask them to do?
3: The assignment's <laughs> open-ended. There's a very rigorous process to moving from these questions to innovation.
0: Okay. And so, my,
3: my most recent favorite project was reimagining how to love someone with Alzheimer's. Wow. Which resulted in... The students running basically a prom-like event at a memory care facility designed more for both the family and facility caregivers to give them a night off to spend with their loved ones without having to be a caregiver.
0: Very interesting. So that's design thinking in action. That is it. I realize you can't pack an entire semester of design thinking into our Back to the Classroom segment, but are there just a couple of key lessons? If you think about what you hope your students take away from a design thinking class, what, what's, the, what's the real lesson?
3: Furniture is a great example of what we want our students to take away in the classroom, which is that most good design is human-centered Design. That is, we deeply consider the needs of the individual in how we create our goods and services.
0: Okay. Could you apply that to like an accounting firm or a legal practice or things that aren't, you know, involving sofas and chairs?
3: In a few weeks, I'll be teaching a workshop on how to design your life. You can apply it to anything products, tangible products, services, and even ideas like your career.
0: Okay. Very deep. All right. Well, thank you very much, Alec Johnson. We appreciate you being here. And thank you to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you haven't already, please subscribe to By All Means wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you hear, take a minute to rate and review us. It really helps. I'm Allison Kaplan on behalf of Twin Cities Business. Thanks for listening to By All Means. teamwork to make by all means and we've got some all-stars thanks to our audio engineer tom for digital support is ricky hannigan and dan nepo thanks to the university of st thomas senior media relations manager vanita Sakar and associate dean of the schultz school of entrepreneurship laura dunham for all their help our theme music is by song finch hope you enjoyed by all means